So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through to 11. A couple months ago, I had a conversation with a longtime friend who was going through a pretty dark season in his faith. Uh, he was at the point where uh, he would say that he wasn't really sure if he could believe anything anymore. And so, uh, as we kind of dialogued back and forth and just talked about how it was that he ended up in the space and what it was experientially that led him there, I said, really, the only thing that resonates with me right now is uh, the opening line of our text. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Everything is vanity. Um, other translations, I think, rightly uh, say meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So we are in the middle of this season of Lent. We're walking through the Old Testament, which is this uh, large beginning part of Scripture. It's the bigger part of Scripture. And we're looking at the ways in which the Old Testament points us to Christ, uh, the way that the Old Testament uh, poses the questions that Jesus answers. Uh, it demonstrates the need that Jesus meets. Today we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if we're being honest as Christians, if you would identify yourself as a Christian in this room, uh, Ecclesiastes is a book that we have a controversial relationship with. Uh, it's one that we would all recognize as being Scripture, but you come to these passages like chapter 1, verse 2, and it certainly sounds a little bit more like a downer part of Scripture. Uh, it makes some of us squirm. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, it's, uh, it's a book that we try to skip through quickly without making eye contact uh, because it makes us squirm. Ecclesiastes, in a lot of ways, is the pessimistic friend in your circle of peers. And so, I mean, I, I think I am that in my circle of peers. Um, but I'm sure everybody has something like that in their or someone like that in their friend's circle. Uh, you're out getting dinner, or you're out hanging out somewhere, and things are going well, and then somebody reminds everyone, this is great, but I've got to work tomorrow. And whatever fun that you're having is immediately shattered by the reality that it can't last forever. Or maybe most friend groups have the, the, the couple that's been together for a long time, and every so often that couple splits, and everybody talks about how devastating it is that that relationship didn't last. Ecclesiastes is the friend that says, I knew it wouldn't last, nothing ever does. Um, probably because he or she has been shattered by some experience in the past and they're projecting their bitterness onto the couple and the friend group. But, uh, but the cynicism of Ecclesiastes is, is really hard for some of us to take, especially those of us who are particularly happy-go-lucky and optimistic and positive. Ecclesiastes is difficult. And yet, I just want to argue that tonight, if we really listen to this book carefully, as we, as we really pay attention to what the teacher is saying and what he is reacting against and what he is despairing in, I think we'll see that Ecclesiastes is still singing a gospel song. It's just singing it in a minor key. The New Testament references the book of Ecclesiastes only once, and it's in passing. It was the passage that Reagan read for us in worship. Um, Paul is talking about the fallenness of the world, how everything has been broken by the sin of Adam, and he says that creation was subjected to futility. And the word that Paul uses uh, is essentially the Greek translation of the first few words of Ecclesiastes. Uh, vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, futile, futile, everything is futile, 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 I don't know how you pronounce it. 
But the fact that Paul has this passing reference to Ecclesiastes as he talks about the way that the world has fallen, I think gives us a little bit of a key into why the book is so dark and what is at the heart of what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is reacting against, because this is not a book that Adam could have written in the garden. This is a distinctly Genesis 3 book. Ecclesiastes is the story of a man pushing back against the fallenness of the world, its inability to satisfy, and it's him saying, it should not be this way. We read from a pretty dark psalm to start off worship. If it was your first time here and you heard us reading all the stuff about the wicked prospering, you're probably super freaked out right now. But that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is so distressed by. Injustice reigns in the lives of good and bad people. The things that should satisfy us don't satisfy us. What does satisfy us gets cut short by death. Life in a Genesis 3 world is a cosmic exercise in breathing through a coffee straw and never fully being satisfied. Uh, Zach Eswin, in his brilliant commentary on Ecclesiastes, says that what stands behind this book is the reality that everything post-Eden is sick. And the author of Ecclesiastes recognizes it. Yet the Christian message is that God has not abandoned his good world to corruption and decay. The author of Ecclesiastes is recognizing real problems in the world, and he refuses to let you and I look away from them. And they're the problems that must be answered if we will ever be saved. And I think that there are answers to his questions in the gospel of Jesus. And so with that in mind, let me read our passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And we'll walk through it together. It says this, The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes. The earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north, around and around and around goes the wind. On its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea. The sea is not full. To the place where streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it can be said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Dark. Not going to be played on the Joy FM anytime soon. The text begins, the author is introduced. He's called the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. It stops short of giving us his full name. Uh, but we're given a good bit about this person. We can sort of piece together a sense of who is writing. Uh, the term that's used to describe him is preacher. The Greek, or I'm sorry, the Hebrew word is koheleth, which means uh, the teacher, the preacher, the assembler, somebody who would call together a congregation and declare something to them. But we're told that this just isn't any preacher, it's the son of David, and he is the king in Jerusalem. And as you read the flow of Ecclesiastes, the life that he describes, this preacher and teacher, sounds a whole lot like the life of Solomon, as it's recorded in the historical books. He stops short of giving us his name, but he all but confirms it in the way that he describes his experiences. And yet, because he doesn't name himself, for most of tonight, we're just going to call him the teacher. 
because that's what he says he is. And so he begins this sermon by saying, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Other translations, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Next week I won't be teaching. Uh, The high school pastor Shane is going to be teaching in my place. And I can just tell you, I think he's one of the best preachers on staff here at our church. And I also sat in the back of the room during his first sermon to high school students. And, and he kind of got up here, and I'm paraphrasing extensively, uh, but he said, hey, so my name's Shane, here's my background. I, I just want to talk to you today uh, with, with our first time together, first session together. I want to talk to you about uh, depression and suffering and how the gospel helps us uh, to endure that. And I sat in the back and I said, that's a bold move for a high school pastor. You're going to lead with depression and suffering. I like this guy. This is cool. (laughs) But if Shane had gotten up here and said, hey, my name's Shane. I just moved here from Illinois. Um, Today I want to talk to you about how life is meaningless and the things that you think you'll find joy in will ultimately disappear when you die, which you will die, by the way. (laughs) Shane is not going to continue working here, uh, not getting a book deal with Lifeway, um, (laughs) probably not being uh, uh, hired to to write songs uh, and lyrics for... Uh, Christian radio stations. And yet this is how the teacher of Ecclesiastes leads. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And the natural inclination when you encounter somebody with this sort of bleak view of the world is to just knee-jerk say, that's not true. No, you're wrong. It's not meaningless. But if, if you're in any sort of like a counseling degree or a medical degree and you're, you're working towards that in your Uh, college experience, uh, you know that that the best approach to diagnosing a problem is asking questions. And so what we ought to do when we hear the preacher say this is ask, why? Why does it seem this way to him? He gives us this answer. He gives us a lot of answers, but he starts by saying, what does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun. His first reason for saying vanity of vanities is that work and toil feel futile. They feel useless. The, the phrase, what does man gain, is, is a, a, uh, it's an economic term. It's a, it's a term for what profit does a man glean? What does he actually get as a reward for all of the work that he does? Man, if you've worked a dead-end job, this resonates deeply with you. And I'm not talking about working at McDonald's in high school to pay for gas money, but I'm talking about like out of college, working a job where you can barely pay your bills, knowing that you're never going to work your way up and that you're always going to be spinning your wheels but never going anywhere. This sense of futility and frustration resonates with you. Or, Or maybe you're like me and you were in college for five or six years with no degree to speak of. And you're taking class after class after class and you're dropping liberal arts math over and over and over again because you can't pass it. And the futility begins to set in that no matter how much work you seem to put into this degree, it's never going to amount to anything that you have to show. It is futile. What does man have to gain for all of the work that he performs under the sun? This futility in work makes life feel empty because try as we might, it never seems like we can lay hold of something that lasts. And this doesn't just apply to lower middle class people or people who are uh, in the working world but not really in the higher ranks of society. You see this in people who are wealthy and well off, who are paying their bills and paying for other things on top of their bills for fun. 
Uh, There's this great quote from Jim Carrey where he says, I wish everyone could be rich and famous so that they see that it doesn't answer anything. There is this futility that the preacher is pushing back against, this reality that even the most rewarding work, even the most beloved job becomes costly and painful and unsatisfying. He is pushing back against the debris of a Genesis 3 world where the ground produces thorns and thistles. But it was not always so. Work existed before the fall, and it was good. And in the fall, work twists back in on itself and becomes destructive. He is reacting to a broken world and the frustration that comes from it. But notice his perspective, because this is the key to the book. He says, the sun rises, or he says, uh, what does man gain by his toil at which he toils under the sun? He's going to use this phrase, under the sun, 29 times throughout the book. Because he is arguing for what life is worth from that particular perspective. It's as if he says, if all that I have is what I see in front of me under the sun, then this is all that life amounts to. He has adopted the position of a materialist and a skeptic. Not an atheist, but certainly a materialist. And I would just tell you that if you find yourself here this evening with that perspective as your own, his conclusion is nearly inescapable in your worldview. Doesn't matter how much you work, it doesn't amount to anything if all that we have is what is under the sun. But the rest of the Bible makes it clear that that is not all that we have. Christ offers an answer to Koheleth's despair, an answer to the teacher's frustration because he invites us to come and to labor towards a kingdom that does not pass away. He invites us to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal, where time and decay cannot erode. The teacher mourns the futility of a life spent working to build his own kingdom because he knows that when he dies, that kingdom will pass with him. But the author of Hebrews invites us to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, built on the name of the only one who will resound throughout eternity. Jesus answers his frustration in work by saying, I am calling you to build and labor for something better that will not pass away in the brokenness of the world. But there's more than that. If that's all that was frustrating to him, then he wouldn't have much else to say. Uh, He goes on, after describing the frustration of work, he says, a generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever, the sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises, the wind blows to the south and to the north, it goes around and around. He lists all of these natural cycles and he finally ends by saying, everything is full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. There's a deeper problem in a Genesis 3 world than the fact that work is unfulfilling and sometimes frustrating. And he forces our nose into the problem. He says a generation comes and a generation goes. The problem is no matter how hard you work, you still die. Death is still the end for all of us. In the garden, Satan says to Eve, surely you will not die. But those words have never sounded more hollow than they do when you read the book of Ecclesiastes. Generation is born and we die, and there's more born and there's more who die, and there's more born and more who die. Of course, we wouldn't recognize this. We wouldn't really think about this in our modern world because we've done our best to plaster over it. 
We've done our best to ignore the reality. We've got all sorts of creams to cover up aging. When we pass through the cemetery, we make sure we keep our eyes on the road so that we don't have to think about the fact that one day all of us and everyone we know are going to end up there. But this is the equivalent of spraying perfume on roadkill. It's still there, no matter how hard you try to cover it up. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes will not let you ignore it. There's a story of a famous uh, British Parliament member, and he was a, a devout Christian, and then there was a friend of his who was an Oxford professor who was a commi- committed atheist, and they would meet together and they would sort of debate the merits of Christianity, and at the end of this season of debates, neither one was convinced of the other's opinion. And then one day, the Oxford professor was uh, stricken with an incurable disease, and so the Parliament member in his biography recounts Uh, the experience of watching this man slowly wither under the weight of illness. He said the first time that he saw him after the diagnosis, he was standing in the rain waiting on a taxi, and he said, hey, I can give you a ride if you want. And he said, what does it matter? I'll be fine. Next time he saw him, he was sitting in the faculty lounge of Oxford, staring into the fire with hollowed-out eyes, completely empty of any hope, completely devoid of any joy. Because if all that we have is what we see under the sun, that in death we lose everything. But Christ has not abandoned his people to the tyranny of death. Instead, he has allowed the tyrant to deal that fatal blow on him so that his people might go free. It's not just that he has died for us, but he has risen for us so that we who are united to him by faith might know that in Christ the power of death over the people of God has been destroyed That it's not just what's under the sun. That it's not generation after generation passing away. Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps at the brokenness of the world just like Koaleth, but then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus, come forth. The early church recognized this, that in Christ, the power of death that led to this sort of despair has been destroyed. Athanasius of Alexandria says it so well. He's writing to non-believers. He says, Doubt no longer when you see death mocked and scorned by those who believe in Christ, that by Christ, death was destroyed and the corruption that goes with it. The teacher cries out, What does it matter? We're all going to die. And Jesus responds, I've come that you might have life, that those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall live. He answers this deep question that drives the author of Ecclesiastes. But he goes on. There's more. There's more to his frustration with this Genesis 3 world. He begins to describe the cycles of nature and how they just continually run on this circuit. Generations come and they go. The sun rises, it goes down. The wind blows to the south and to the north and back to the south. The streams run into the sea. And then he ends this little diatribe by saying, everything is full of weariness. One of my favorite books, we'll see if I get fired for saying this, uh, The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker, which would become the script for the great 80s slasher movie Hellraiser. Fine piece of art. And in chapter 3 of the book, I'm almost positive Clive Barker read Ecclesiastes before he wrote this, because he describes the passing of time like this. Spring, if it lingers for more than a week beyond its span, begins to hunger for summer to end, the perpetual days of promise. 
Summer, in turn, soon begins to sweat for something to quench its heat. The mellowest of autumns will tire of gentility at last and ache for the quick, sharp frost to kill its fruitfulness. Everything tires with time. The author of Ecclesiastes says, everything is full of weariness. Perhaps you've experienced this. And perhaps that's where you are right now. That moving from one crisis to the next to the next, your life feeling as though you're perpetually putting out fires, trying to manage one difficult experience after another after another, this endless circuit of frustration, you have come to the point where you say with the teacher, everything is full of weariness. I am tired. Maybe you've followed the promises of materialism and found them lacking. Maybe you've filled your bloodstream with all sorts of substances in the hope that it would fix the pain and it leaves you broken. Maybe you've followed the sexual revolution and seen that it's the same old, same old, shattering people with empty promises that can never be made good on. So a young man named Augustine in 400 who experienced this. He was raised in a Christian home. He ran far and fast from that for years and years. He moved from woman to woman, bar to bar, philosophy to philosophy. By all modern standards, he was an alcoholic and a sex addict. And at the end of his life, not the end of his life, but at the end of the season of his life, he found himself in a field under a fig tree, shattered and exhausted because nothing could satisfy him and he was weary, worn down by his appetites and their inability to ever quench his hunger. And it was at this moment that he heard the voice of somebody saying, take up and read, take up and read. His friend who was with him had a copy of the letters of Paul and he did what I would never recommend that you do, which was he opened his Bible and he dropped his finger on a verse. And it was this passage in the letter of Paul to the Romans that laid hold of him. And in that moment, he finally surrendered his life to the Lord that he had run from for so long. So that later on, as he writes his autobiography, he begins with this prayer. He says, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. The teacher cries out, everything is full of weariness. I am exhausted. And Jesus responds, come to me, you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. But he comes to this final point. He says, is there anything of which it can be said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, this is not to say that if the teacher were to look at an iPhone or a space station, he would go, yeah, I've seen that before. Uh, that's not what he's saying, but what he's saying is that despite how the world changes and how it shifts, the heart of the human condition remains the same. There's still pain, there's still death, there's still suffering, there is nothing new. And I would venture to say that nearly all of us have felt this way before. Can things ever really change? Can things ever really be different from what they are now? This is his final act of desperation. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing could change in this broken, fallen world. And if all we have is what's under the sun, then that's true. Yet we confess 
that the very Son of God has come down into the world to make new what could never have fixed itself, to restore what never could have been restored on its own, to bring to life a people who were dead in their transgressions and incapable of raising themselves to new life. The teacher cries out, nothing could ever change, and Jesus responds, behold, I make all things new. And Paul cries out, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. An early Jewish commentator on Ecclesiastes read it again and again and again, and he finally put it down in frustration, and he, he wrote, oh Solomon, where is your wisdom? Where is your wisdom gone? From under the sun, in a broken world, if what we see is all we have, Solomon's perception is right on point. We are left in a broken, fleeting, unfulfilling wreckage of a world. And yet, at the turn of the tide, 2,000 years ago for us, 1,000 years later for Solomon, Jesus stands with a new set of religious leaders. And they're questioning him about his authority. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he says to them, someone greater than Solomon is here. The one who has come to heal the wounds that so grieved the teacher. The one who's come to make the world whole again so that rather than crying out vanity, worthlessness, we can instead cry out glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Ecclesiastes is a book about a world gone wrong. And make no mistake, the Bible is amply supportive of the fact that the world has gone wrong. But the story does not end with a world gone wrong. It ends with the God of that world setting it right again. And so even in this minor key, Ecclesiastes lays its hand to the issues that made the very incarnation of Jesus necessary. Solomon looks at the world and he says it should not be. And Christ looks back and says it will not always be. But I will make it whole again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us, that you haven't left us in this world that we've made such a mess of. But in your mercy, you've sent the Son. Christ, in your love, you've gone willingly. You've come to answer all of the things that have gone wrong in the world, to set them right again, to restore all things in your return. Holy Spirit, give us the ability to look with longing towards the day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. God, we thank you that you've given us a book like Ecclesiastes to, to mourn the frustration that we experience in this world, but we thank you that you haven't just given us Ecclesiastes so that our mourning goes unanswered, but you have spoken through your Son. We ask now that as we come to communion, you would remind us of how you care for us even in the midst of difficulty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.